This is the Transcend Human Podcast, a weekly show where we learn what it means to rise above the human condition. We hope the conversation today is just what you need for the week ahead. are back. Welcome to the Transcend Human Podcast, March 14th, 2022. Here we go. All right. For those of you who've been around for a few weeks, you know we're in the middle of a series called Conscience Driven Therapy. Actually, today is chapter 10, the last chapter. So after today, we will be done. So for those of you just jumping into Conscience Driven Therapy, you picked a really bad week to jump in because you should probably go back to chapter one and start from there. Um, If you are brand new to Transcend Human, period, uh, I would suggest you go all the way back to the beginning, to episode one. Or um, you could actually go back to the first episode of this season. So that would be the first episode in January. I think it was like episode 96 maybe or something like that. Uh, You could go back to that episode where we really did a Transcend Human Revisited, right? We we went back and kind of did a high-level overview of what Transcend Human is, what the Transcend Human podcast is all about, things like that. So that would really give you a zero to 60 um, quickly. But let's dive into the content for today and start with our minute of transparency. So I'm entitling this one, He's the Guy. So today I thought I would tell you my Guy Kawasaki story. So it it won't make a whole lot of sense right now, but when we get farther into the episode, it'll become clear why I'm telling this story. So where to begin? Well, I think it was back around 2005, six or seven, somewhere in there. Uh, I was working as the web director at Granger Community Church in Granger, Indiana, and Every year, the church put on this conference at that time called the Innovative Church Conference. So it had been running for a few years already, and as the church was growing uh, in with leaps and bounds, so too was this conference. Every year it got bigger and bigger to the point where it had become an annual event for numerous pastors and their staff members uh, from across the country. And every year, the pastors from our church would prepare talks for the you know, the main auditorium sessions, and then other selected staff members would prepare uh, to run topic-based breakout sessions um, throughout the building, and and we would prepare for this every single year. And every year, there was a keynote speaker, someone from the outside, someone we brought in to add flavor to the event, and probably someone to increase ticket sales at the end of the day. But This year, I think it was 2007, it turned out to be Guy Kawasaki, a venture capitalist and a former Apple employee. But that's not the fun part of the story. The fun part of the story begins when I tell you that the communication department at the church, as you can imagine, was heavily involved in putting on this event. We pretty much owned it, right? Everything from the branding to the print pieces to the signage to the full-blown website with all of the details about this conference. And this year in particular, my boss, the communication director, decided to divvy up all of the available tasks uh, and then hand them out to team members on our team. And somehow I landed what she considered the big one. 
I was given the responsibility of being Guy Kawasaki's personal chauffeur. Now, this meant I had to pick him up from the airport the day before the conference and drop him off at his hotel. Then, the morning of the event, I had to drive to the hotel, pick him up, make sure he had breakfast, and bring him back to the conference. And then finally, I had to drive him back to the airport after his talk. Now, for those of you who know me, you're probably laughing already because you know me, right? My personality, the fact that I'm a behind the scenes guy, an introvert, and not typically raising my hand for these front facing tasks. But that was my assignment and I was not really given an out. Now, before I get too far into this, let me say that this has nothing to do with Guy Kawasaki, right? As a person, he's a great guy, and I'm really glad that I got to meet him. It had a whole lot more to do with me and my introvertedness, and probably a bit of insecurity thrown in there for good measure. So here are the only things that I remember about my time with Guy Kawasaki. First, I remember that I did not have the right car for the job. So at that time, I was driving a 2000 Honda Civic, and this is what I had to drive to pick up the legend, Guy Kawasaki. Now, this was a very tangible piece of my insecurity, to be sure. I just kept thinking, Guy's probably looking at the car and thinking, really? This is what they sent to pick me up? Number two, I remember we had a conversation about hockey, like in the car at some point. Now, I love hockey. He loves hockey. He plays hockey, and he has kids who played hockey. So it was something we had in common and something that we could talk about. Number three, he was from Southern California. A fun fact that really didn't mean a lot to me back then, but now, look at this. I live here in Southern California. I find that piece of the story a little bit more interesting now. And then there's the fact that my son is playing hockey here in Southern California, just like his kid was playing hockey in Southern California. Just interesting stuff. Number four, during the keynote, I remember distinctly him saying something about Apple shipping crap. What he meant by that was that Apple often knew that there were bugs in their hardware and in their software, but that in order to get their devices to the market, they had to ship them with the bugs. He called it crap. He said the, the mantra was, we'll fix it later, which makes a whole lot of sense to me. Uh, especially recently when I upgraded to the iPhone 13 Pro. It literally came with a faulty screen. Half of it was bright and the other half looked like it had a dark filter applied to it. Now, to me, this seemed a little strange. I mean, wouldn't a quality assurance employee, a QA person have seen this and flagged it as a problem? But then Guy's explanation came back to me. Ship crap and fix it later. So apparently that mantra still exists at Apple. And then finally, the last thing I remember was just this whole awkward silence. I tried to keep the conversation going, but that's not my forte. So there were times when we finished up a topic and we didn't know how to start the next one, creating an awkward silence. Me driving my little blue Honda Civic and Guy Kawasaki staring out the window wondering what on earth have I signed up for. And that's it. That's my Guy Kawasaki story. Like I said, It'll come full circle later in the episode, but for now, let's jump into our topic, which is Becoming a CDT Ambassador, Chapter 10. And we're going to break it into three sections, as always. Uh, CDT for me, CDT for my family, and CDT 
for the world. Number one, CDT for me. So we're not going to spend a lot of time here because we just spent nine weeks looking at it from that angle. I mean, at its core, conscience-driven therapy is a self-help strategy, right? Which means it's personal, something we can read, think about, and incorporate into our lives if we so choose. But before we can even entertain the idea of becoming a CDT ambassador, we really have to buy into it ourselves. We can't just jump from zero to 60 and start promoting conscience-driven therapy without first seeing the benefit in our own lives. We have to become immersed in the idea and see it work. Only then will we be able to explain it well to another person. So let's do a high-level overview of the last nine chapters. So like I said, we broke it into two parts. Things we cannot control was chapters one, two, and three. And then the second part, chapters four through 10, are things we can control. So chapter one, a lot of things came before us. So we talked about the whole controversy theory foundation, the idea that God and Satan are uh, in this battle over the allegiance of every human being, past, present, and future. That includes you, me, our kids, and everyone else who comes after them. Chapter two, we were sent in a specific direction. We talked about how our past impacts us, right? The people, places, and things from our past. Chapter three, there were landmines and minefields along the way. We talked about the big rocks from our past, the events or strings of events that either happened to us or that we participated in, big things that may have produced trauma in our life. Then in part two, the things that we can control, we started with chapter four, the first step toward health and healing. We discussed the importance of accepting the antidote to the sin virus and thereby voting for God in the eternal election. And we discussed the importance of us seeing our true value. Chapter five, hold on to the good, release the bad. We discussed shifting our focus from the landmines and minefields of our past and focusing a bit more on the assets and strengths that we have right here and right now. Basically reframing our worldview to be more positive and less focused on the things that are outside of our control. Chapter six, locus of control and ETOTO. We discussed the concept of control and the perceived control we believe we have and the importance of that. We summarized again the things we can and cannot control. And then we focused on the things that are within our control and the areas where we can exercise our freedom of choice. A big one being our thinking, right? So we talked through the ETOTO worksheet, E-T-O-T-O, uh, which helps us in the disputation process, disputing irrational thoughts and beliefs. And we wrap things up talking about some common choices we get to make in life. Things like whether we hold a grudge or offer forgiveness or whether we choose to place blame on people or just accept things and move on. Next, chapter seven, understanding the battle. We talked about Satan's game plan, which is revenge. We talked about God's game plan, which is his rescue mission. We talked about personalized temptation plans or PTPs and how Satan has one for each and every one of us. Highly specialized plans as to how to ruin your life. And then we talked about eternal life plans, or ELPs, and how God has one for each one of us as well. Chapter 8, Knowing is Half the Battle. We talked about the two-step process. First understand, 
then act. We talked about being proactive, living proactively. And one of these proactive steps was to create our own plan for our future. We called it a personalized plan of attack or a PPA, a personal document that can help us define the past, assess the present, and live a future filled with purpose and meaning. Chapter nine, transcend human. So we discuss what it looks like to live the transcend human lifestyle, living our lives on mission, living by our values, using the tools that we have access to, changing our worldview, and starting new rhythms. This is our plan. Or according to the Mandalorian, this is the way. Little Star Wars reference there for some of you. You'll understand. Number two, CDT for my family. So once we've immersed ourselves in the conscience-driven therapy ecosystem, and we've felt the benefit that comes from living the transcend human lifestyle, the obvious next step is to share it with others, right? I mean, when we find the next great ice cream shop, what's the first thing we do? We take a selfie, right? We got the cone in one hand, we've got the store in the background, and we take that selfie, and we make sure that everyone on Instagram knows about it. So why is it any different with conscience-driven therapy? Why wouldn't we want to share something that makes our lives better with other people that we care about? And the best place to start is really those closest to us, our immediate family. So let's spend a few minutes on the various people that make up our family, starting with our partner or our spouse. Now, this person, hopefully, is an adult themselves. So our significant other, our partner in crime, our spouse, the father or mother of our children, and because this person is an adult, they come complete with their own understanding of the world, their own worldview, right? They have their own personality, their own ideas, their own worldview, their own spiritual and religious beliefs, their own political views, and the list goes on and on. If you don't believe me, think about movies, TV shows, music. They all have very specific opinions about all of those things, right? And the crazy thing is this, their list often does not align with ours right? Different strokes for different folks, opposites attract, that sort of thing. And it's okay. In fact, it's probably for the best. The last thing we want to do is wake up in the morning and roll over and see ourselves in bed next to us. No, we're attracted to our spouse typically because we see things in them that we don't see in ourselves. But I digress. I'm just a firm believer in this whole concept that spouses should be complements to each other and not the mirror image of each other. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have things in common, that we sat down before we got married and that we talked about important things like our spiritual beliefs, how we wanted to raise our children, how we wanted to treat other people. I mean, there has to be some level of agreement on big things like this, or it would have fallen apart long ago. Enter conscience-driven therapy. So how do you introduce your spouse to a concept like this, right? Well, I don't have the perfect answer or the perfect scenario, but I think it can be as simple as just injecting it into a normal everyday conversation. I mean, here's a, a recent example from my own life. So my wife came home one day from work, I think, and, and she said, hey, have you ever heard of Mars Hill Church? I said, I think so. Isn't that Rob Bell's church in Michigan? She said, no, I don't think so. I think it's a church in Seattle. I said, nope, never heard of it. She said, I've been seeing all sorts of things on social media about this podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. 
So I listened to the first episode uh, the other day, and it's insane. I think you would find it fascinating. And that's all she had to say. So I subscribed to the podcast, and eventually I listened to the entire thing, all because my wife suggested I might like it. Now, in my head, this is the best case scenario, right? You You recommend something like Conscience Driven Therapy to your spouse, and then they decide to check it out on their own time if they're interested. Because other scenarios just seem a little more sketchy, right? Here's a couple. A wife is in an argument with her husband, and toward the end of it, she throws out, maybe if you listen to the Transcend Human podcast, you wouldn't be like this. Or how about this one? A husband notices his wife struggling with something from her past, so he says, you just can't seem to get over that. Maybe if you listen to the Transcend Human podcast, you'd get it figured out faster. (laughs) See what I mean? Transcend Human and Conscience-Driven Therapy are self-help tools. But when you start throwing them at people like weapons, they can go from being helpful to being harmful in that moment. Now, I'm sure there have been situations where a person told another person about something like conscience-driven therapy in a moment of anger, and maybe it changed the person's life eventually. I don't know, but I would venture to say that this is the exception and not the rule. So let's stick with scenario one. In normal, everyday conversation, something like, So I found this podcast the other day, and I've been listening to it in the car on the way to work. It's crazy good, and the guy is so intelligent. Okay, scratch that part. But you know what I mean. I found something I like. It really changed my my perspective on life. I think you'd like it. Drop the mic. Done. At that moment, you've opened the door, and it's up to that person whether or not they want to open the door farther and walk in. Okay, that's the spouse. Let's move on to the next group, which is our kids. But I'll need to split this up into age groups in order to make it more helpful. So let's start with the youngest. Let's talk toddlers, preschoolers, that kind of roughly age one to five. Let's let's start with that. So at this age, they're working on movement and coordination along with changes in intellect, socialization, and emotional range. Basically, they're little sponges soaking up all their environment has to offer them. But when it comes to adult concepts like conscience-driven therapy, more is caught than taught. In other words, they're more likely to watch our behavior and learn from that than they are from the words that we actually say. However, there are still ways that we can explain things at this age to be helpful to them. So let's walk through a few of these concepts, right? So the first is the concept that there is a higher power. Uh, At this point, they won't fully understand it, but we can start by doing little things like praying with them before they go to bed, reading simple books that help them with themes like love, kindness, and sharing. We can attend church where there's programming for little kids. Maybe they'll hear stories repeated like the ones they hear at home. Next, the concept that they are loved and have value. Now, again, they won't immediately tie this to God or the fact that he created them, but we get to show them what that means by the way that we love them and value them as parents. So appropriate physical touch, right? Hugs, kisses, holding them, allowing them to play around you, on you, and in your personal space, redirecting them in their interactions with their siblings, showing them that each sibling is valuable and deserves to be loved. Next, we have the concept of consistency and follow-through. So we can be helpful to our kids simply by being consistent in the way that we act, 
in the tone of voice that we use and in the love that we show them. This provides them with safety and security. They can start to expect things because they happen consistently. Next, we can provide consistent follow through. So if we tell our kids that they will get a timeout if they throw food on the floor or whatever, we need to put them in timeout when it happens. If we're consistent in our follow through, they learn that there are consequences to the things that they do. Now, I'm sure there are many more, but let's move on. So next up, we have elementary age kids. So let's just say first grade to fifth grade. So it's in these early school years that our kids start to learn confidence, right? They experience success. They experience failure. They begin to learn problem solving skills. They access their creativity and they experience the positive aspect of getting results from their efforts. Now, at this stage, I would suggest that things can be caught and taught. So our kids watch us like hawks, right? They're still learning by our actions as to what is right and wrong. So if we want them to learn good things from our behavior, we need to make sure that we are always on, that we are always modeling the kind of behavior that we expect out of them. And at the same time, our kids are able to hear the things we say and make sense of them. So we can begin to teach them concepts that will be helpful later in life. Here are just some next level things that we can teach our elementary kids from conscience-driven therapy. So first of all, we should start by having discussions with our kids about the big three questions. So if you've been around the podcast for any length of time, you know that the big three questions are, where did we come from? Why are we here? And where are we going? Now, these questions will undoubtedly bring up conversations about the following, the concept of God, Satan, good, evil, the fall, the sin virus, voting in the eternal election, the human condition, heaven and hell. At this point, our kids are old enough to have heard most of the big Bible stories, so why not have conversations about them at home? Next, we can start having conversations with our kids about things like control, the things that we can and cannot control in life. We can work with them on reframing this whole idea that we have the freedom to choose what we focus on. We can focus on the bad things from the past and present, or we can focus on positive things, things that we have influence over in the present and in the future. Next, we can talk about rational thinking. We can start teaching them the basics behind the cognitive therapies, concepts like life isn't fair, so don't expect it to be. People and events don't make us angry. We make ourselves angry. Our thoughts and beliefs drive our emotional and behavioral responses to things. Our thinking can be faulty, irrational, and can get us into trouble. And then finally, concepts like being proactive versus reactive. So helping them see that how they choose to respond to something is very important. And the whole idea that they can decide in advance what type of person they want to be. And this is an area where you could even introduce the idea of having a life plan for your future. Next, we have the teenager group. So to streamline things, we're just going to clump middle school and high schoolers together. Um, Not because they're exactly the same. Obviously, there's a lot of differences between a 13-year-old and an 18-year-old. But when it comes to their ability to understand concepts and ideas, they are pretty close. So how can we take the concepts from conscience-driven therapy to the next level with this age group? First, we can add color to the whole controversy concept. By this age, our kids probably understand the concept of God, Satan, and the fact that they represent good and evil in the world. 
But the next level is to help them understand spiritual warfare. The fact that it's an actual battle going on behind the scenes every single day of our lives. And that this battle, though behind the scenes, has a very real impact on us in the real world. Now is a good time to discuss Satan's game plan, which is revenge against God, right? Uh, And God's game plan, the rescue mission, and what all that means. The problem is, at this age, teenagers believe two things. First, that they know it all. And second, that they are invincible. Now, this makes our lives as parents very difficult because when we start talking about things like this, we're pushing back on both of those beliefs. First, we're suggesting that we know things that they don't, danger, and we're reminding them that life is not a given, that they aren't invincible, right? They can make a very poor decision that can lead to a very devastating consequence sometimes later in life, but at other times it can be an immediate consequence when you think of drug overdoses or car accidents that end in somebody dying. So like I said, these are very difficult conversations. So here's some some, uh, recommendations, I guess, if you will, for these kinds of conversations. Maybe you let them happen in small chunks, right? Little tidbits that you can throw out there and they can chew on and think about. Or maybe you have these conversations only after you've been asked an open-ended question from your teenager at a time when they seem genuinely open to our opinion about such things. Like I said, this is a very delicate balance. Next, expand on the importance of living with values. So in a recent episode, we threw out these four, right? The four that transcend human uh, use, truth, transparency, growth, and love. And within these four values, we can have conversations about things like absolute truth, living controversy aware, living with transparency, being proactive versus reactive, being a lifelong learner, moving from being a consumer to a contributor, understanding how much we are loved, and living with the other's first mindset. Next, we can have transparent conversations with our teenagers. So we need to show our teenagers that nothing is off the table. Our homes are a safe place and they can talk about um, the difficult things with us, right? We need to allow them to be transparent without us dumping our values on them or us judging them in any way, shape, or form. And then we need to be willing to be transparent with them. So what if your 17-year-old daughter asked you if you were a virgin before you got married and you weren't? (laughs) You have a couple options, right? You can lie and say, yes, yes, I was. And now there's a barrier that's built between you and your child, a missed opportunity for you to take one step closer to each other. Or you can be honest and say, no, I wasn't, and I regret it now. Or maybe that's a lie as well. Maybe in order to be fully honest, you need to say, no, I wasn't a virgin when I was married. And to tell you the truth, I haven't really thought that much about it. At the end of the day, your honesty might just be the thing that your daughter needs to hear from you in order to make her own decision, to listen to her conscience and do what she believes is right for her. Now, that's just one of many conversations you could have with your teenager. I mean, think of all the possibilities. Maybe this is where you have a conversation about landmines and minefields, right? Letting your teenager open up about some of the things that happened to them in the past that may have been traumatic. Now, important caveat here, do not be your teenager's therapist. I can't say this strongly enough. If your teenager opens up to you about something as painful as a sexual abuse incident, 
that's a miracle. But them asking you to help them work through it is nearly non-existent. If they divulge this type of information to you, be thankful that they chose you to tell. Listen, be supportive, but do the next right thing. The first thing might be to report the abuse to the authorities. But for sure, find your child a therapist, someone that they can tell everything and begin the healing process with. Next, hammer home the concepts of locus of control and freedom of choice. As our teens get closer and closer to 18, they need to be making more and more of the decisions for themselves. We've talked about this before, I think back in the parenting series. So here was the four-step process that we talked about. I do it, you watch. I do it, you help. You do it, I help. And then you do it, and I watch. Now, think of this in terms of years of life. So step four, where the child is doing it, or the teenager is doing it, and we're simply watching, this needs to be happening either toward the end of junior year or for sure during senior year of high school. If this isn't the case, what happens to your teenager when they leave home for college? How do you think that first year is going to go? Total freedom, but with little to no decision-making skills. Dangerous to be sure. So if step four happens in the last two years of high school, just work your way backward for step three, step two, and step one. This is the freedom of choice part that we're talking about, right? Teaching your kids, teaching your teenagers to make good decisions with the freedom that they have to choose. The locus of control part is a little bit different. Locus of control isn't the actual control they have. It's the perceived level of control that they have. How much control they believe they have over their life and life events. Believe it or not, this is something that we can teach them as teenagers. It comes along for the ride when we're handing over more and more freedom. We have conversations with them about the fact that there are things in life you cannot control. These are the things that we need to understand and think rationally about. Then there are the things, the host of other things that we can control, meaning you do have a high level control over your life. And in these areas, it's important to make good choices, to be proactive, to plan ahead, and to work toward the life that you want to have. This reinforces locus of control and helps them understand that we're passing the baton on to them. Now, if your teenager is a real go-getter, they may even be willing to complete a personalized plan of attack or a PPA. Nothing says locus of control and being proactive like completing a PPA. It's them doing the hard work of analyzing their life, choosing how they want to view their past, determining their weaknesses and blind spots, figuring out where they may have some irrational thinking or beliefs, and then determining the people, places, and things that will be helpful to them in their future. And finally, live life through the transcend human filter. So like we talked about last week, what if you started having conversations with your teenager about the human condition? All parts of it. Excellent, good, neutral, bad, ugly. Call things what they are. Be willing to discuss the spiritual implications and how an event or a situation plays into the controversy. And couch life decisions in terms like, how does this help me rise above the human condition? Does this choice transcend human? Etc., etc. And that's really it. But that was a lot more than I thought I was going to say about using conscience-driven therapy in the family setting. 
I think I just, I kept going back to the transcendent parenting series and, you know, so many things we talked about there. Um, I was pulling into this episode because it's just such good stuff. At any rate, hopefully that was helpful to you. I truly believe that conscience-driven therapy can be extrapolated for use with any age group, right? That it can be instrumental in how we parent and how we equip the next generation. All right, number three, CDT for the world. Okay, so we talked about using conscience-driven therapy in our own lives and in the lives of our family members, but what about using it with other people? Now, before you get all weirded out on me, I'm not talking about pushing it on people, brainwashing people, or manipulating them with conscience-driven therapy. I'm really talking about two things. First, modeling it. So showing people that conscience-driven therapy works for us by the lifestyle that we live. And then second, being able to explain conscience-driven therapy to people if they ask us about it. But before we talk about these two things, I want to bring Guy Kawasaki back into the conversation. So in the minute of transparency, I called him a venture capitalist and a former employee at Apple. But what I left out was his official title when he worked at Apple. According to Wikipedia, Kawasaki worked in the marketing department at Apple and popularized the word evangelist. So he became known as an Apple evangelist. And apparently, he must have really liked the name because today he's the chief evangelist for a little graphics application called Canva. So what does it mean to be an evangelist? Well, according to Forbes.com, in an article titled Why Every Tech Company Needs a Chief Evangelist, they discuss the differences between a traditional salesperson and being an evangelist. So let's just read through this list of um, differences that they suggest. So under the motivation, uh, traditional sales is to make money. The motivation is to make money. For evangelism, it's making history. The philosophy behind sales is to sell something. The philosophy behind evangelism is to convert somebody. The method used for a salesman is to impose this on a person. The method for evangelism is exposure, to expose people to something. The end goal for a salesman is quota, right? Making quota. For an evangelism, it's to change the world. When and where? Sales, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., usually at the clubhouse. For an evangelism person, person involved in evangelism, it's anywhere, anytime. Now, the article quotes Kawasaki saying things like, evangelism isn't a job title, it's a way of life. And I had to protect and preserve the Macintosh cult by doing whatever I had to do. The dots connect all the way back to the point of why they existed in the first place. They're customers. So the article paraphrases Steve Jobs, and it says, you have to start with the customer and work back to the technology. An evangelist brings that to life. Evangelism creates a human connection with buyers and consumers to your technology way beyond the typical content marketing means. Because there's a face and a name relaying the story, expressing the opinion, and ultimately influencing your decision. So ultimately, it was Guy Kawasaki, right? It was his name, his face, his charisma, and his story that helped sell the Apple products. Because he lived it, breathed it, and told everyone he knew about it. Now, the title of this episode is Becoming a CDT Ambassador. 
So I want to head in that direction by defining the difference between evangelist and an ambassador. Now, if you look up the definitions uh, online, you'll, you might get picky and you might tell me that I have it backwards, but just hear me out because here's why I want to go with it. So if Guy Kawasaki is the chief evangelist for Apple, I'm going to say that an evangelist is a person paid by the company to promote the product or service with every fiber of their being. And all of the people who heard Guy speak and drank the Kool-Aid became his army of ambassadors. People who went back home, people went back to their workplaces and either bought Apple products or requested that their IT department start moving from PC to Mac. At least, this is the way that we're going to use the two words today for the purposes of this episode. So in the case of conscience-driven therapy, I'm the chief evangelist because there's only me. If I wasn't talking it up, explaining the power behind it, promoting it on the podcast, nobody would be, right? So I'm the chief evangelist, and I'm asking you to be conscience-driven therapy ambassadors, to take what you've learned, to use your story, to help other people understand what it's all about. Now, I don't have an elevator pitch written out and polished for you. There's nothing for you to memorize so that you're ready to go at a moment's notice. At the end of the day, it's your story that matters. It's telling a friend that you found something that has helped you, something that changed your worldview, that helped you think more rationally that helped you reframe your past and live a life with a higher level of purpose and meaning. And if all of those things are true, there's a chance that's why you're having the conversation in the first place, because your friend probably saw something different in you. They saw a change, a change for the better, and they asked you about it. Okay, so let's land the plane. When I really decided that I wanted to start writing, uh, I listened to numerous podcasts and I read quite a few books on what that meant to other people, how it worked for them, the type of person you had to become, the lifestyle that you had to lead in order to see your dream come true. And to a person, they talked about things like having a shadow career, right? A job that you have in order to live. And then the other career, which is the thing that you're really passionate about, which is your writing. And so the writing basically happened outside of that, outside of your shadow career. And for most people, this happened early in the morning, almost every morning, getting into a rigid routine that in time produced great results. Before they knew it, they had a finished draft and they were on to the next step in the process. And these are all things that I believe to be true because I've seen it play out in my own journey. But the thing I learned in all of this research about being an evangelist or an ambassador for my written work can be described using the formula below. Provide the genre, then the masterwork, then the distinction. One more time. Provide the genre, then the masterwork, then the distinction. So how does this work? Well, let's do a few so you get the idea. Let's say I was J.F. Lawton and I was pitching my screenplay Under Siege to a movie studio. I might explain it like this. This is an action thriller. Think Die Hard, but on a battleship, right? So let's break that statement down. Action thriller is the genre. Die Hard is the masterwork. And the distinction is that it happens on a battleship versus a skyscraper. I'm sure you get it, but let's do one more. So let's say you're trying to do a film made about a submarine you'll probably say something like this this is an action film think hunt for red october 
Only, not a Russian crew trying to defect, a group of mercenaries that steal an old German submarine and are headed for Los Angeles to carry out a terror attack on the United States. See how that works? So what if we did that for conscience-driven therapy? As the chief evangelist, I would put it this way. This is a nonfiction big idea book. Think cognitive behavioral therapy only with spirituality thrown in as an added benefit. And there you have it. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's the elevator pitch after all. Conscience-Driven Therapy is a nonfiction big idea book. It's a self-help philosophy that you can use or a therapist could use with his or her clients. It is a combined approach to health and healing. The combination of spirituality and psychology. It believes in the fundamental teachings of the Christian faith. It comes out of the foundational work called Controversy Theory. And it leverages tried and true cognitive behavioral treatment modalities like cognitive behavioral therapy and rational emotive behavior therapy. And that's it. That's how you become a CDT ambassador. You live it yourself, you incorporate it into your family and your parenting, and you share it with others. Pass it on, pay it forward, be a guide, if you will. This week, there are no questions. Only the ask. I'm asking you to share conscience-driven therapy with one person this week. Assuming that it's been helpful to you, of course. It's as simple as telling someone your story, where you first heard it, what it did for you, and then sending them to transcendhuman.com. Under the resources tab, you'll find all of the series we've done, including conscience-driven therapy. Simple as that. And that's a wrap, folks. Another series in the can. One final piece of information, I just wanted to let everyone know that I removed the Patreon page this week. Now, I just, I don't know what it was. I thought this was the next logical step in the process. But when I got in, set up the account, and really tried to make it work, I was not impressed. Not a fan of Patreon at all. So if you were willing to pay for a membership, the Patreon platform is not what I have in mind for you. It's not what I want you to get for your money. So as of today, I've taken all of the tools that we've talked about in this series and I've put them on the CDT landing page on the website. So there's a link in the show notes if you're interested. It's basically conscience or it's uh, transcendhuman.com forward slash conscience dash driven dash therapy. As always, it's there. You can have it. Uh, I want it to be useful to you. Um, so we'll we'll head in that direction for for now and see where it takes us. So As always, thank you each for choosing to be with us here on the journey uh, and for hanging out with us during this series. It's been a long and tedious journey pulling all of the content together, but I'm so excited that it's finally out there in the world. I have no idea what's on the horizon for controversy theory and conscience-driven therapy. Um, I would love it if someday they became companion books and I saw them on the shelves at Barnes & Noble. That would be incredible. But that's for another day to figure out. So... Next week, we pick back up with another episode of Transcend Human podcast, um, working through felt need topics that help us rise above the human condition. Until then, have a great week, everyone. And as always, keep transcending human.
you for listening to this episode of the Transcend Human podcast. If you're interested in the show notes for this episode, head on over to transcendhuman.com forward slash podcast and navigate to the episode you're looking for. On the website, you'll also find blog posts, podcast series, and other helpful resources to help you navigate the Transcend Human ecosystem. You'll also find links to our social media channels, And as always, if you have questions, feel free to contact us at info at transcendhuman.com. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you back here on Monday morning.